Section 4 of The Evolution of Modern Medicine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melody Coriati. The Evolution of Modern Medicine by Sir William Osler. Section 4. Chapter 1. Origin of Medicine. Assyrian Medicine and Babylonian Medicine. Of equally great importance in the evolution of medicine was the practically contemporary civilization in Mesopotamia. Science here reached a much higher stage than in the Valley of the Nile. An elaborate scheme of the universe was devised, a system growing out of the divine will, and a recognition for the first time of a law guiding and controlling heaven and earth alike. Here, too, we find medicine ancillary to religion. Disease was due to evil spirits or demons. These demons, invisible to the naked eye, were the precursors of the modern germs and microbes, while the incantations recited by the priests are the early equivalents of the physician's prescriptions. There were different incantations for different diseases, and they were as mysterious to the masses as are the mystic formulas of the modern physician to the bewildered, yet trusting, patient. Indeed, their mysterious character added to the power supposed to reside in the incantations for driving the demons away. Medicinal remedies accompanied the recital of the incantations, but despite the considerable progress made by such nations of hoary antiquity as the Egyptians and Babylonians in the diagnosis and treatment of common diseases, leading in time to the development of an extensive pharmacology, so long as the cure of disease rested with the priests, the recital of sacred formulas, together with rites that may be conveniently grouped under the head of sympathetic magic, was regarded as equally essential with the taking of the prescribed remedies. Three points of interest may be referred to in connection with Babylonian medicine. Our first recorded observations on anatomy are in connection with the art of divination, the study of the future by the interpretation of certain signs. The student recognized two divisions of divination, the involuntary, dealing with the interpretation of signs forced upon our attention, such as the phenomena of the heavens, dreams, etc., and voluntary divination, the seeking of signs, more particularly through the inspection of sacrificial animals. This method reached an extraordinary development among the Babylonians, and the cult spread to the Etruscans, Hebrews, and later to the Greeks and Romans. Of all the organs inspected in a sacrificial animal, the liver, from its size, position, and richness in blood, impressed the early observers as the most important of the body. Probably on account of the richness in blood, it came to be regarded as the seat of life, indeed, the seat of the soul. From this important position, the liver was not dislodged for many centuries, and in the Galenic physiology it shared with the heart and the brain in the triple control of the natural, animal, and vital spirits. Many expressions in literature indicate how persistent was this belief. Among the Babylonians, the word liver was used in hymns and other compositions precisely as we use the word heart and Yastrov gives a number of illustrations from Hebrew, Greek, and Latin sources illustrating this usage. The belief arose that through the inspection of this important organ in the sacrificial animal, the course of future events could be predicted. The life, or soul, as the seed of life, in the sacrificial animal is, therefore, the divine element in the animal, and the god in accepting the animal, which is involved in the act of bringing it as an offering to a god, identifies himself with the animal becomes, as it were, one with it. 
The life in the animal is a reflection of his own life, and since the fate of men rests with the gods, if one can succeed in entering into the mind of a god and thus ascertain what he purposes to do, the key for the solution of the problem as to what the future has in store will have been found. The liver being the center of vitality, the seat of the mind, therefore, as well as the emotions, it becomes the case of the sacrificial animal, either directly identical with the mind of the god who accepts the animal, or, at all events, a mirror in which the god's mind is reflected, or, to use another figure, a watch regulated to be in sympathetic and perfect accord with a second watch. If, therefore, one can read the liver of the sacrificial animal, one enters, as it were, into the workshop of the divine will. Hepatoscopy thus became, among the Babylonians, of extraordinary complexity, and the organ of the sheep was studied and figured as early as 3000 BC. In the divination rites, the lobes, the gallbladder, the appendages of the upper lobe, and the markings were all inspected with unusual care. The earliest known anatomical model, which is here shown, is the clay model of a sheep's liver with a divination text dating from about 2000 BC, from which Yastrov has worked out the modern anatomical equivalents of the Babylonian terms. To reach a decision on any point, the phenomena of the inspection of the liver were carefully recorded, and the interpretations rested on a more or less natural and original association of ideas. Thus, if the gallbladder were swollen on the right side, it pointed to an increase in the strength of the king's army, and was favorable. If on the left side, it indicated rather success of the enemy, and was unfavorable. If the bile duct was long, it pointed to a long life. Gallstones are not infrequently mentioned in the divination texts, and might be favorable or unfavorable. Various interpretations were gathered by the scribes in the reference notebooks, which serve as guides for the interpretation of the omens and for textbooks of instructions in the temple schools. The art of divination spread widely among the neighboring nations. There are many references in the Bible to the practice. The elders of Moab and Midian came to Balaam with the rewards of divination in their hand. Joseph's cup of divination was found in Benjamin's sack, and in Ezekiel the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way and looked in the liver. Hepatoscopy was also practiced by the Etruscans, and from them it passed to the Greeks and the Romans, among whom it degenerated into a more or less meaningless form. But Yastrov states that in Babylonia and Assyria, where for several thousand years the liver was consistently employed as the sole organ of divination, there are no traces of the rite having fallen into decay or having been abused by the priests. In Roman times, Philostratus gives an account of the trial of Apollonius of Tiana, accused of human hepatoscopy by sacrificing a boy in the practice of magical arts against the emperor. The liver, which the experts say is the very tripod of their art, does not consist of pure blood, for the heart retains all the uncontaminated blood and irrigates the whole body with it by the conduits of the arteries, whereas the gall, which is situated next the liver, is stimulated by anger and depressed by fear into the hollows of the liver. We have seen how early and how widespread was the belief in amulets and charms against the occult powers of darkness. One that has persisted with extraordinary tenacity is the belief in the evil eye, the power of certain individuals to injure with a look. Of general belief in the older civilizations, and referred to in several places in the Bible, it passed to Greece and Rome and today is still held fervently in many parts of Europe. The sign of Lacorna, 
The first and fourth fingers extended, the others turned down, and the thumb closed over them, still used against the evil eye in Italy, was a mystic sign used by the Romans in the festival of Lemuralia, and we meet with the belief also in this country. A child with hemiplegia at the Infirmary for Diseases of the Nervous System, Philadelphia, from the central part of Pennsylvania, was believed by its parents to have had the evil eye cast upon it. The second contribution of Babylonia and Assyria to medicine, one that affected mankind profoundly, relates to the supposed influence of the heavenly bodies upon man's welfare. A belief that the stars in their courses fought for or against him arose early in their civilizations, and directly out of their studies on astrology and mathematics. The macrocosm, the heavens that declare the glory of God, reflect, as in a mirror, the microcosm, the daily life of man on earth. The first step was the identification of the sun, moon, and stars with the gods of the pantheon. Assyrian astronomical observations show an extraordinary development of practical knowledge. The movements of the sun and moon and the planets were studied. The Assyrians knew the precision of the equinoxes and many of the fundamental laws of astronomy, and the modern nomenclature dates from their findings. In their days, the signs of the zodiac corresponded practically with the twelve constellations whose names they still bear, each division being represented by the symbol of some god, as the scorpion, the ram, the twins, etc. Changes in the heavens portend changes on earth. The biblical expression hosts of heaven for the starry universe admirably reflects the conception held by the Babylonian astrologers. Moon, planets, and stars constituted an army in constant activity, executing military maneuvers which were the result of deliberation and which had in view a fixed purpose. It was the function of the priest the barku or inspector as the astrologer as well as the inspector of the liver was called, to discover this purpose. In order to do so, a system of interpretation was evolved, less logical and less elaborate than the system of heptoscopy, which was analyzed in the preceding chapter, but nevertheless meriting attention both as an example of the pathetic yearning of man to peer into the minds of the gods, and of the influence that Babylonian Assyrian astrology exerted throughout the ancient world. With the rationalizing influence of the Persians, the hold of astrology weakened, and according to Yastrov it was this, in combination with Hebrew and Greek modes of thought, that led the priests in the three centuries following Persian occupation to exchange their profession of diviners for that of astronomers. And this, he says, marks the beginning of the conflict between religion and science. At first an expression of primitive science, astrology became a superstition, from which the human mind has not yet escaped. In contrast to divination, astrology does not seem to have made much impression on the Hebrews, and definite references in the Bible are scanty. From Babylonia it passed to Greece, without, however, exerting any particular influence upon Greek medicine. Our own language is rich in words of astral significance derived from the Greek, e.g. disaster. The introduction of astrology into Europe has a passing interest. Apparently the Greeks had made important advances in astronomy before coming in contact with the Babylonians, who, in all probability, received from the former a scientific conception of the universe. In Babylonia and Assyria we have astrology first and astronomy afterwards. In Greece we have the sequence reversed, astronomy first and astrology afterwards. It is surprising to learn that, previous to their contact with the Greeks, 
astrology as relating to the individual, that is to say, the reading of the stars to determine the conditions under which the individual was born, had no place in the cult of the Babylonians and Assyrians. The individualistic spirit led the Greek to make his gods take note of every action in his life, and his preordained fate might be read in the stars. A connecting link between the individuals and the movements in the heavens was found in an element which they shared in common. Both man and stars moved in obedience to forces from which there was no escape. An inexorable law controlling the planets corresponded to an equally inexorable fate ordained for every individual from his birth. Man was a part of nature and subject to its laws. The thought could therefore arise that, if the conditions in the heavens were studied under which a man was born, that man's future could be determined in accord with the beliefs associated with the position of the planets rising or visible at the time of birth, or, according to other views, at the time of conception. These views take us back directly to the system of astrology developed by Babylonian Baru priests. The basis on which the modified Greek system rests is likewise the same that we have observed in Babylonia, a correspondence between heaven and earth, but with this important difference— that instead of the caprice of the gods, we have the unalterable fate controlling the entire universe, the movements of the heaven and the life of the individual alike. From this time on until the Renaissance, like a shadow, astrology follows astronomy, regarded as two aspects of the same subject, the one, natural astrology, the equivalent of astronomy, was concerned with the study of the heavens, the other, judicial astrology, was concerned with the casting of horoscopes, and reading in the stars the fate of the individual. As I mentioned, Greek science in its palmy days seems to have been very free from the bad features of astrology. Gilbert Murray remarks that astrology fell upon the Hellenistic mind as a new disease falls upon some remote island people. But in the Greek conquest of the Roman mind, astrology took a prominent role. It came to Rome as part of the great Hellenizing movement, and the strength of its growth may be gauged from the edicts issued against astrologers as early as the middle of the 2nd century BC. In his introduction to his recent edition of Book Two of the Astronomicon of Manilis, Garrod traces the growth of the cult, which under the empire had an extraordinary vogue. Though these heavenly signs be far removed from us, yet does he, the god, so make their influence felt, that they give to nations their life and their fate, and to each man his own character. Oracles were sought on all occasions, from the planting of a tree to the mating of a horse, and the doctrine of the stars influenced deeply all phases of popular thought and religion. The professional astrologers, as Pliny says, were Chaldeans, Egyptians, and Greeks. The Etruscans, too, the professional diviners of Rome, cultivated the science. Many of these Isiasi conjectores and astrology de circo were worthless charlatans, but on the whole, the science seems to have attracted the attention of thoughtful men of the period. Garrod quotes the following remarkable passage from Tacitus. My judgment wavers, he says. I dare not say whether it will be fate and necessity immutable which governs the changing course of human affairs, or just chance. Among the wisest of the ancients, as well as among their apes, you will find a conflict of opinion— Many hold fixedly the idea that our beginning and our end, that man himself, is nothing to the gods at all. The wicked are in prosperity, and the good meet tribulation. Others believe that fate and the facts of this world work together. 
But this connection they trace not to planetary influences, but to a concatenation of natural causes. We choose our life that is free, but the choice once made, what awaits us is fixed and ordered. Good and evil are different from the vulgar opinion of them. Often, those who seem to battle with adversity are to be accounted blessed, but the many, even in their prosperity, are miserable. It needs only to bear misfortune bravely, while the fool perishes in his wealth. Outside these rival schools stands the man in the street. No one will take from him his conviction that at our birth are fixed for us the things that shall be. If some things fall out differently from what was foretold, that is due to the deceit of men that speak what they know not, calling into contempt a science to which past and present alike bear a glorious testimony. Cato waged war on the Greek physicians, and forbade his Wilicus all resort to Harispicem augurim hariolum caldeum, but in vain. So widespread became the belief that the great philosopher Panaceus, who died about 111 BC, and two of his friends alone among the Stoics, rejected the claim of astrology as a science. So closely related was the subject of mathematics that it, too, fell into disfavor, and in the Theodosian Code sentence of death was passed upon mathematicians. Long into the Middle Ages, the same unholy alliance with astrology and divination caused mathematics to be regarded with suspicion, and even Abelard calls it a nefarious study. The third important feature in Babylonian medicine is the evidence afforded by the famous Hammurabi Code, circa 2000 BC, a body of laws, civil and religious, many of which relate to the medical profession. This extraordinary document is a black diorite block eight feet high, once containing 21 columns on the obverse, 16 and 28 columns on the reverse, with 2,540 lines of writing, of which now 1,114 remain, and surmounted by the figure of the king receiving the law from the sun god, Copies of this were set up in Babylon, that anyone oppressed or injured, who had a tale of woe to tell, might come and stand before his image, that of a king of righteousness, and there read the priceless orders of the king, and from the written monument solve his problem. From the enactments of the code, we gather that the medical profession must have been in a highly organized state, for not only was practice regulated in detail, but a scale of fees was laid down, and penalties exacted for malpraxis. Operations were performed, and the veterinary art was recognized. An interesting feature, from which it is lucky that we have in these days escaped, is the application of the lex talionis, an eye for an eye, bone for a bone, and tooth for a tooth, which is a striking feature of the code. Some of the laws may be quoted. Paragraph 215. If a doctor has treated a gentleman for a severe wound with a bronze lances, and has cured the man, or has opened an abscess of the eye for a gentleman with the bronze lances, and has cured the eye of the gentleman, he shall take ten shekels of silver. 218. If the doctor has treated a gentleman for a severe wound with a lances of bronze, and has caused the gentleman to die, or has opened an abscess of the eye for a gentleman, and has caused the loss of the gentleman's eye, one shall cut off his hands. 219. If a doctor has treated the severe wound of a slave or a poor man with a bronze lances, and has caused his death, he shall render slave for slave. 220. If he has opened his abscess with a bronze lances and has made him lose his eye, he shall pay money half his price. 221. 
if a doctor has cured the shattered limb of a gentleman, or has cured the diseased bowel, the patient shall give five shekels of silver to the doctor. 224. If a cow doctor or a sheep doctor has treated a cow or a sheep for a severe wound and cured it, the owner of the cow or sheep shall give one-sixth of a shekel of silver to the doctor as his fee. End of section 4 Recording by Melody Coriati